Thank you for listening to our New Life Christian Center podcast. Stay tuned after the sermon for more ways to connect with us. I said no jokes, but uh, I couldn't help it. Um, so, so there was this, uh, it's just, this, just the one, because we don't have time for any more than that. Um, there was a, uh, an old, um, very dignified preacher who, uh, who uh, was standing up in, uh, in a, uh, an old church one day, and he said, in you know, an old preacher voice, Lord, we are but dust. And then he paused for effect, and there was a little boy who shouted out, Mommy, what's butt dust? <laughs> Ty and Tinley read me some this morning, too, but I'm going to save those until, they, uh, until they're here. They're, they had to sneak out, which I guess there's no sneaking if I announce it that they... So uh, today, uh, today is going to be different. It, it will be more normal next week, probably. Um, oh, wait, uh, June 18th, that's today. Children's Church for three years through first grade with Carmen Roth and the three young men who I handed that sheet to. Thanks. You guys are so good at laughing at jokes. Everybody could learn something from Kevin and Lola about how to respond to a joke, whether it's good or not. <laughs> oh, uh, notes are on version today. They're very basic notes, so uh, it's more, um, more a, uh, just a general sort of guideline to, if you're accustomed to using those notes, feel free to, and... Uh, there will probably be opportunities to, uh, to use the Add Notes button um, on that, uh, that platform if you're accustomed to using it. If not, get your, uh, get your pen ready or your um, attentioner ready. So today is a little different. I'm going to read to you my favorite book. And uh, it's a book that the youth have, uh, have gotten to hear or had to hear, depending on their perspective, uh, multiple times. And they're going to hear it again probably, and uh, you'll hear it as well. So I, I'm, I am certain that God will speak to you through this today. Um, this is, in fact, a Father's Day message. So uh, let's, uh, let's go. Um, in, in a, before I read it, in a, in a scientific sense, God created space, time, and matter, right? That covers everything. And he created laws that govern space, time, and matter, Right, like the laws of gravity, the laws of thermodynamics. There's a whole bunch of laws that uh, that we can look up, and uh, they are a thing becomes a law as a result of repeated observations and experiments, where you can predict what the outcome is. That's what that's what what has to happen in order for a thing to be given the uh, the label of a law. Um, and so there's, there's a law that recently was, uh, was accepted, and it's called the Law of Sensitive Dependence on Initial Conditions. Has anyone ever heard of the Law of Sensitive Dependence on Initial Conditions? Someone has to have heard of the Law of Sensitive Dependence on Initial Conditions. No one? This is even better. Perfect. I'm going to, uh, this book is about that law. Um, and it, it's... Uh, it's in a book by Andy Andrews called The Butterfly Effect. 
and I would encourage you all to go out and buy a copy of it and read it over and over and over again and give it away and read it again. And so uh, I hope you feel the same way after I'm done. So um, this, uh, pay attention because this is going to take, depends on how fast I read. It's a small book. That's part of the reason I like it. So Andy Andrews wrote The Butterfly Effect. Here it goes. How significant is my life? Do I make a difference? When I move, when I act, when I do something, does the universe notice? Do I really matter? In 1963, Edward Lorenz presented a hypothesis to the New York Academy of Science. His theory stated simply was that a butterfly could flap its wings and set molecules of air in motion, which would move other molecules of air, in turn moving more molecules of air, eventually capable of starting a hurricane on the other side of the planet. This was hypothesized in 1963. Lawrence and his ideas were literally laughed out of the conference. What he had proposed was ridiculous. It was preposterous, but it was fascinating. Therefore, because of the idea's charm and intrigue, the so-called butterfly effect became a staple of science fiction. Remaining for decades a combination of myth and legend spread only by comic books and bad movies. So imagine the scientific community's shock and surprise when more than 30 years after the possibility was introduced, physics professors working from colleges and universities worldwide came to the conclusion that the butterfly effect was authentic, accurate, and viable. Soon after, it was accorded the status of law, now known as the law of sensitive dependence upon initial conditions. This principle has proven to be a force encompassing more than mere butterfly wings. Science has shown the butterfly effect to engage with the first movement of any form of matter, including people. Did you know that there once existed a single man who more than a century ago made one move that still dramatically affects how we live today? He was a 34-year-old school teacher, but on the hot, humid day of July 2nd, 1863, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was in the fight of his life. The former professor of rhetoric at Bowdoin College in Maine, He was now a colonel in the Union Army. Chamberlain stood at the far left edge of a group of 80,000 men strung out in a line across fields and hills stretching all the way to a little town called Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Earlier that day, a Colonel Vincent had placed Chamberlain and his men of the 20th Maine at the end of the line saying, whatever you do, you cannot let them come through here. Chamberlain couldn't withdraw and he knew it. If the Confederate Army overran them, the rebels would gain the high ground and the Union Army would be quickly defeated. In essence, 80,000 men would be caught from behind on a downhill charge with no protection. To win, the gray-clad Confederates would have to come through Chamberlain. At 2.30 p.m., the first charge came from the 15th and 47th Alabama regiments. They attacked uphill, running as fast as they could and firing at Chamberlain's men who were stationed behind a rock wall they had thrown up that very morning. The 20th Maine stopped the rebel charge and pushed him back down the slope, only to face a second, and then a third charge. On the fourth assault, Chamberlain was knocked down by a bullet that hit him dead center in the belt buckle. Realizing that he wasn't seriously hurt, the colonel scrambled to his feet, continuing to fight. Again, they halted the enemy's charge, and again, the rebels retreated down the hill. At that time in history, battles were fought with artillery and small arms ammunition. The struggles were close face-to-face affairs. With their fourth charge, the Confederates almost made it to the wall, a thigh-high stack of flat rocks that ran almost 100 yards and 10 yards in length. 
or 110 yards in length, sorry. As they waited for the next charge, Chamberlain felt sorry for his men. He recalled later, their leader had no real knowledge of warfare or tactics. I was only a stubborn man, and that was my greatest advantage in this fight. I had deep within me the inability to do nothing. Chamberlain continued, I knew I might die, but I also knew that I would not die with a bullet in my back. I would not die in retreat. I am at least, like the Apostle Paul wrote, this one thing I do, I press toward the mark. The attack came again on this, the fifth charge. The 15th and 47th Alabama broke open the wall, and the fighting raged on both sides. Without time to reload, the men were swinging their rifles at each other and brawling with fists and knives. Somehow, the 20th Maine pushed the rebels down the hill another time. After that fifth broken charge, Chamberlain's younger brother, Tom, appeared with Sergeant Tozier, an old, hard-nosed soldier. Tozier had a thick wad of torn shirt stuck in a hole in his shoulder where he had been wounded. No help from the 83rd, the sergeant said. They're shot to ribbons, and all they can do is extend the line a bit. We're getting murdered on our flank. Can we extend, Chamberlain asked. There's nothing to extend, Tom answered. More than half our men are down. It was true. Chamberlain's command had started in Bangor, Maine, six months earlier, with 1,000 men. They started that morning with 300, and now they were down to 80. How are you for ammunition, the colonel asked. We've been shooting a lot, was his brother's answer. I know we've been shooting a lot, Chamberlain snapped. I want to know how we're holding out. How much ammunition do we have left? As Tom ran to check, a 12-year-old lookout had climbed the tree, and he yelled, They're forming up again, colonel. Chamberlain looked up to see the boy pointing down the hill. They're forming up right now, and they've been reinforced. Sir, there's a lot more of them this time. At that moment, the messenger stumbled into their midst. Out of breath, he said, Sir, Colonel Chamberlain, sir, Colonel Vincent is dead. Are you sure, soldier? Yes, sir, he gasped. He was shot right at the first of the fight. They were firmed up by Weed's brigade, but now Weed's is dead. They've moved Hazlitt's battery up top, and Hazlitt's dead, too. Chamberlain's brother came running back. Joshua, he said, we're out. One, two rounds per man at the most. Some of the men don't have anything at all. Chamberlain turned to a thin man standing on his right. It was First Sergeant Ellis Spear. Spear, he ordered, tell the boys to take ammunition from the wounded and dead. We did that last time, sir, Spear replied. Maybe we should think about pulling out. Chamberlain responded grimly, we will not be pulling out, Sergeant. Carry out my orders, please. Colonel, Sergeant Tozer spoke up, we won't hold them again, sir. You know we won't. Joshua, it was his brother. Here they come. Here they come. Chamberlain stepped to the top of the wall in full view, crossing his arms and staring down at the advancing enemy. The 15th and 47th Alabama, with their pale yellow-gray uniforms now reinforced by a Texas regiment, moved up the hill as their high-pitched shriek, the rebel yell, cursed up toward Chamberlain and his men. Coursed up toward Chamberlain and his men. Sergeant Spear was standing at the colonel's feet. Sergeant Tozier, Chamberlain's brother Tom, and Lieutenant Melcher, the flag bearer, were huddled below. Joshua, his brother said, do something. Give an order. Chamberlain stood there for a moment, deep in thought, quickly sorting the situation. We can't retreat, he thought. We can't stay here. When I'm faced with the choice of doing nothing or doing something, I will always choose to act. He turned his back on the advancing rebels, looked down at his men, and he said, fix bayonets. At first, no one moved. They just stared at him with their mouths open. Fix your bayonets now, he commanded. 
execute a great right wheel of the entire regiment. Swing the left first and do it now. Lieutenant Melcher spoke first, confused. Sir, he asked, what's a great right wheel? But the colonel had already jumped from the wall and was moving up to the next group of men. Sergeant Tozier answered the question. He means to charge, son. The great right wheel is an all-out charge. Then turning the colonel, pointed his sword directly downhill. Facing overwhelming odds, Chamberlain slashed his blade through the air, and with a power born of courage and fear, the schoolteacher from Maine roared, Charge! 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 To his men. The remaining 80 fighting men lifted their voices to match that of their leader. Charge! Charge! They cried, tumbling over the wall into a history about what most, most people in our country have never even heard. When the Confederate troops saw Chamberlain, the leader of the opposition, mount the wall, they immediately stopped, unsure as to what was happening. And when the colonel pointed his sword toward them and commanded his men to charge, they turned and ran. They threw down their loaded weapons. The rebels were certain that these were not the same soldiers that they had been facing. Surely these men had been reinforced, they thought. A beaten regiment would not charge. In less than five minutes, Chamberlain had his sword at the collarbone of the Confederate captain. You, sir, are my prisoner, he stated. The man turned around a fully loaded Navy Colt revolver and offered it to Chamberlain and said, Yes, sir, I am. Within five more minutes, the ragged group of 80 men under Chamberlain's command, without any ammunition, captured over 400 soldiers of the enemy. It's an amazing story, isn't it? And absolutely true. But here's what most people never consider. Historians have determined that, Chamberlain had, that had Chamberlain not charged that day, the rebels would have won at Gettysburg. Further, historians tell us that had the rebels won at Gettysburg, the South would have never won the war. The South would have won the war. And the war itself would have been over by the end of the summer. Most people assume that had the South won the war, today we would exist as two countries, the Union and the Confederacy. Historians, however, insist that if the South had won the war, we would now live on a territorial fragmented continent much like Europe. North America would be divided into 9 to 13 countries. Which means, when Hitler swept across Europe in the 1940s, had Chamberlain not charged on that afternoon so long ago, there would not have existed a United States of America to stand in the breach. When Hirohito systematically invaded the islands of the South Pacific, there would not have been a country big enough, strong enough, wealthy enough, and populous enough to fight and win two wars on two fronts at the same time. The United States of America exists as it does today because of a single man, a 34-year-old schoolteacher, and one move he made more than a century ago. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is a human example of the butterfly effect. One man who made one move whose effects still ripple through your life today. And you're no less of an example of the butterfly effect than Chamberlain was. Everything you do matters. Every move you make, every action you take matters. Not just to you or your family or your business or your hometown. Everything you do matters to all of us forever. On Friday, April 2nd, 2004, ABC News honored a man who at the time was 91 years old. The news program was running a regular segment called Person of the Week. Usually the honoree's accomplishments are listed in advance, and by the time the name is announced, most folks have already guessed the identity of that week's recipient. In this instance, however, the pronouncement left many viewers puzzled. 
And so, our person of the week is, the anchorman finally said, Norman Borlaug. One can only imagine the frowns. Who? Who did he say? Norman, what was his last name? Yet despite our unfamiliarity, Norman Borlaug is a man who is personally responsible for drastically and dramatically changing the world we live. In the early 1940s, Norman Borlaug hybridized high-yield, disease-resistant corn and wheat for arid climates. From the Dust Bowl of Western Africa to our own desert southwest, from South and Central America to the plains of Siberia and across Europe and Asia, Borlaug's specific seed product flourished and generated where no seed had ever thrived before. Through the years, it's been now calculated that Norman Borlaug's work saved from famine more than two billion lives. Actually, it was never reported, but the anchorman was misinformed. It was not Norman Borlaug who saved the two billion people, though very few people caught the mistake. It was a man named Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace was the vice president of the United States under Franklin Roosevelt. Wait a minute, you might exclaim, I thought Harry Truman was the vice president under Roosevelt. That is true, but remember, Roosevelt served four terms. He had three different vice presidents, and the second man to serve as Roosevelt's vice president, Roosevelt's vice president, from 1941 to 1945 was Henry Wallace. Wallace was a former secretary of agriculture who, after one term as vice president, was dumped from the ticket in favor of Truman. While Wallace was president, however, he used the power of that office to create a station in Mexico whose sole purpose was to hybridize corn and wheat for arid climates. And he hired a young man named Norman Borlaug to run it. So Norman Borlaug won the Nobel Prize, and Norman Borlaug was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, but considering the connection, it was really Henry Wallace that saved the two billion people. Or was it George Washington Carver? You remember Carver, don't you, the peanut guy? Here's something that very few people know. When Carver was 19 years old and a student at Iowa State University, he had a dairy sciences professor who on Saturday and Sunday afternoons would allow his six-year-old boy to go out on botanical expeditions with this brilliant student. It was George Washington Carver who took that boy and instilled in him a love for plants and a vision for what they could do for humanity. It was George Washington Carver who pointed six-year-old Henry Wallace's life in a specific direction long before he ever became vice president of the United States. It's amazing to contemplate, isn't it? George Washington Carver flapping his butterfly wings with the peanut. There are currently 266 things he developed from the peanut that we still use today. He flapped his wings with the sweet potato, and there are 88 things that Carver originated from the sweet potato we still use today. And while no one was even looking... George Washington Carver flapped his wings a couple of times with a six-year-old boy, and he just happened to save the lives of more than two billion people, and counting. So maybe it should have been George Washington Carver Person of the Week. Or the farmer from Diamond, Missouri. His name was Moses, and he lived in a slave state, but he didn't believe in slavery. This made him a target for psychopaths like Quantrill's raiders who terrorized the area by destroying property and burning and killing. And sure enough, one cold January night, Quantrill's raiders rode through Moses' farm. The outlaws burned the barn, shot several people, and dragged off a woman named Mary Washington who refused to let go of her infant son, George. Now, Mary Washington was a friend of Moses' wife, Susan. Though distraught, Susan promptly set to work writing messages and contacting nearby farms. She got word through neighbors and towns, and two days later, 
managed to secure a meeting for Moses with the bandits. Susan looked on anxiously as her husband rode off on a black horse. His destination was a crossroad in Kansas several hours to the north. There, at the appointed time in the middle of the night, Moses met up with four of Quantrill's raiders. They were on horseback carrying torches and had flour sacks tied over their heads with holes cut out for their eyes. There, the farmer traded the only horse he had left on their farm for what the outlaws threw him in a dirty burlap bag. As the bandits thundered off on their horses, Moses fell to his knees, and there, alone on that dark winter night, the farmer pulled from the bag a cold, naked, almost dead baby boy. Quickly, he jerked open his coat and his shirt and placed the child next to his skin. Covering him with his own clothes and relying on the warmth from his own body, the man turned and walked that baby boy home. Moses walked through the night and into the next morning to get the child to Susan. There, they committed to that tiny human being and to each other that they would care for him. They promised the boy an education to honor his mother Mary, who they knew was already dead. That night, they gave the baby their own name. And that's how Moses and Susan Carver came to raise the little baby George Washington. So when you think about it, maybe it was the farmer from Diamond, Missouri who saved the two billion people. Or was it his wife who was responsible? Certainly it was Susan who organized the effort. It was she who demanded immediate action. Unless, is there an ending to this story? Exactly who was it that saved the two billion lives? Is there a specific person whom we could point? How far back would we have to go? How many lives would we need to examine in order to determine who it really was whose actions saved two billion people? A number that continues to increase every minute. And how far forward would you need to go in your life to show the difference you make? There are generations yet unborn whose very lives will be shifted and shaped by the moves you make and the actions you take today and tomorrow and the next day and the next. Every single thing you do matters. You've been created as, a one of a, as one of a kind. On planet Earth, there has never been one like you, and there never will be again. Your spirit, your thoughts, your feelings, your ability to reason and act all exist in no one else. The rarities that make you special are no mere accident or quirk of fate. You have been created in order that you might make a difference. You have within you the power to change the world. Know that your actions cannot be hoarded or saved for later or used selectively. By your hand, millions, billions of lives will be altered, caught up in a chain of events begun by you this day. The very beating of your heart has meaning and purpose. Your actions have value far greater than silver or gold. Your life and what you do with it today matters forever. Good book, huh? So, um, you, you never know the impact that even a simple word or a statement can make in someone's life. Many of you knew my, my uncle Arlen. Um, I often get, uh, get called Arlen. Um, I often get mistaken for his son. And uh, I have great memories of him, but by far the most impactful thing he did for me was to tell me once on the phone while I was in college, he said that I could do and be successful at anything I decided to. And he meant that sincerely, and I could tell. And that small, non-specific word of encouragement and belief in me 
has stuck with me and is the most vivid memory I have of him. Simple statement. He probably didn't think twice about it, just spit it out. And it has been something that's given me energy and encouragement ever since. It reminds me a little bit of, a, uh, of a, uh, the, the scripture in James 3, 3 through 5. And uh, since we're in church, I should probably read that. I was asking God, I'm like, are you sure you want me to just read a book that's not the Bible in church? Is that allowed? Is that? Surely there's some rule against that or something. Don't worry, for those of you that think it is a rule, we're going to read some of the Bible too, if I can find James. There it is. James 3. Oh, thank you. Well, I've already got my phone out. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they obey us, and we turn their whole body. Little, little things turn such a huge animal. Look also at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. And then it goes on to talk about the words that you speak. But it does remind me of that imagery that it takes such a small thing to move something so large. The, uh, the butterfly effect can be seen in Exodus. In Exodus 18, 13, uh, you can go there if you want, you don't have to. We're, we're, uh, we read that Jethro advised his son-in-law Moses to delegate responsibility because Moses was wearing himself out trying to do everything on his own. He, uh, he was trying to lead in the manage, and manage the, God's people by himself. And Jethro seemingly kind of just as a, a side comment noticed this thing and he says, uh, what you need to do is delegate so that other people can do things for you. And they set up this whole system. Again, we'll not go through it, but it, it was a system of organization where people are in charge of thousands and hundreds and fifties. And they handle the things that Moses was trying to handle on his own for everybody. That was Jethro's that was Jethro's suggestion to Moses, and we still follow that same structure today in almost every successful business, in every successful organization, in the military. It's organized in the way that we read about 4,000 years ago, where Moses said, or where, where Moses' father-in-law, which, by the way, I, I'm struggling to not... <clears throat> Never mind. <laughs> Listen to your fathers and your father-in-laws. So we're going to spend the rest of our time in the Bible story found in the book of Esther. And I want you to see if you can identify the butterfly effect in that story. So Esther is a book that never explicitly mentions God, but it's a story that is... Do you realize that? The book of Esther never mentions God specifically. I didn't realize that until I started studying this. And yet, God's hand is all over that book. So, uh, let me get there as well. If you're wondering, we'll start in Esther 2. But not before I give you some, uh, some historical context, because as you know, I like to do that. So for, for those of you who are like me and really enjoy this history connection, 
this is really awesome stuff. For those of you that don't, feel free to not pay attention, and I'll, I'll grab your attention again when we get past the history stuff. So in, eight, in, in 586 B.C., the Jewish people were conquered by the Assyrians, then exiled by the Babylonians who had conquered the Assyrians. And then they were taken over. They, the, the Babylonians weren't conquered. They just gave up to the Persians because the Persians were so overwhelming, they said, ah, we're not in it for the fight, we're yours. So in 559 B.C., Cyrus the Great, the Cyrus that we read about in the book of Ezra, he is uh, leading the Persian people. And there's a really interesting book called uh, Xenophon's, uh, Xenophon's Cyrus the Great, The Arts of Leadership and War. Really, really interesting information about Cyrus's history, um, his, where he came from, kind of where he, he was really well known as, and is still well known today, as the first kind of conquering leader that set in place a human rights type of, uh, type of idea where those people that had been conquered by the Persians, they were allowed and even encouraged to maintain their own practices, maintain their own cultures, to worship the way they wanted to worship, just understand that you're ours now. That was kind of his deal. In uh, 522, he was succeeded, succeeded by Darius. Darius is Cyrus's nephew, and he ruled the Persian Empire as the king most famously known for the guy who lost to the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon. You know the 26.2-mile race that we get today? That's the king who lost to the Greeks in that one. We get the name because... Uh, this uh, runner, famous Greek runner named Phidippides. Uh, every runner knows who Phidippides is. Phidippides is the Athenian soldier who ran 25 miles from where the Battle of Marathon was back to Athens to tell everybody, hey, we won, we held back the Persians, because it was a big, scary deal, right? And then he collapsed and died because he was worn out. Now, that's 25 miles. Just, uh, this is just an extra non-churchy thing, but the distance today is 26.2 miles because in the 1908 Olympics in London, the queen decided that she didn't want to go watch the marathon with everybody else. She wanted to be able to watch it from the castle. So they changed the route and extended it by a mile, 0.2, so that the royals could watch it from, from the castle and not have to go out with everybody else. At that point, that's where it was decided by the Olympic Committee that the standard distance of a marathon would be 26.2 miles. Uh, again, for those of you not paying attention to the history, we're not done quite yet. In, uh, then in 486 BC, the next king who took over the Persian Empire was Ahasuerus. His name sound familiar? He's the king that we're introduced to in Esther. Ahasuerus is more well-known in the world by his uh, Greek name, which is Xerxes. Xerxes, for those of you with, uh, that don't have a ton of testosterone, is the king that met up and fought against the 300 Spartans at the hot gap. There are lots of stories told about that encounter. We'll not get into them, but that's Xerxes. Xerxes and Ahasuerus, same guy. Okay? Okay. Those of you that haven't been paying attention, come on back. 
Oh, actually, you can, you can wait for just a second. I want, I want to tell you just a, a tiny bit more about Esther's family tree. So Esther's family tree, everybody remembers who Jesse is, right? Jesse's youngest son, David, became the king after God's own heart, right? His oldest son, uh, his name was Eliah. He is Esther's grandpa. So Esther and David are related. David is Esther's great uncle. Again, didn't realize there was a connection there, but there is. Uh, okay, those of you that were bored with the history, come on back, please. So uh, in Esther 2.7, we read that, uh, actually, we should probably read Esther 2.7. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. Nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we learn that her Hebrew name is Hadassah. We're, we know her as Esther because that's her Persian name, is Esther. And we learn that, here's the uh, one little nugget of a take-home message for today. There are people around you that you need to, to adopt and see you as a loving father, sometimes literally, but certainly figuratively there are those people around you that you need to be the Mordecai to. So most of the, the story of Esther, most of you know it, will not read all of it. I'll, I'll mention the a very abbreviated Cliff Notes because it's already, is it 11.25? Because it's already 11.25. Um, so King Ahasuerus has this six-month and one-week party to show off the splendor of his kingdom. He's pretty impressed with himself. He invites all of his officials to a party that lasts literally for six months. And the whole point of the party was to say, hey, look at us. We've got this thing figured out. Come on and party with us. And then the, the, the last week, why it's six months and one week, the entire rest of the kingdom was invited to party with them, eat and drink for an entire week. So we get to the end of that story, and the Bible tells us that King Ahasuerus was merry with wine. No kidding. After six months and a week of drinking nonstop. So... At the end of this, this week, he's married with wine. That's when he, he gives his, uh, his wife, the queen Vashti, this instruction to come parade herself in front of him and, uh, and his officials. And she, interestingly, refuses, uh, which was not allowed. Um, and so Ahasuerus is convinced by the men in his court that she not only wronged the king, but she wronged every man and every husband in the kingdom. Because... By her example, all wives might think that they could not obey their husbands, and we can't have that. <laughs> and what kind of society would that be if that were allowed? So <clears throat> Vashti was chucked out of the kingdom. She, was, uh, she wasn't killed, but she was banished. Then uh, in the, Esther 2 starts with the words, after these things. After these things is the gap between what Vashti did after his party and some of the battles we just talked about. That, that, uh, the, uh, the battle where they ultimately ended up conquering the, uh, the Greeks at the hot gates and ended up overtaking the Greeks. By the way, that was also kind of a get-even. Like he, There was always a burr under Ahasuerus' saddle or Xerxes' saddle because Darius had been defeated by the, by the, uh, the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon. 
So he decided he needed to get even. That's, that was the whole motivation for that, uh, for that battle in the first place. Anyway, Esther 2 starts with after these things, which means the timeline is after those battle, he comes back and decides that, uh, um, that he needs a queen. So they all get together and decide there needs to be this big beauty pageant in the kingdom where 300 beautiful virgins are invited they're not really invited. They're forcibly taken from their homes, and they're prepared for a year for one night with the king. That's exactly how it sounds, as kind of a tryout to see if they're going to be the queen. Esther is uh, eventually selected as the, uh, the new queen um, and uh, after a year, and then that's when we're introduced to Haman, who is Ahasuerus' right-hand man, and he hates the Jews. Uh, he gets offended that Mordecai, Mordecai won't bow to him, so he convinces Ahasuerus to let him kill all the Jews. How, after he does this convincing, he, what the Bible tells us is he casts lots. Essentially, there, there was some sort of oracle thing they threw out to decide the date that they were going to kill Haman and all the Jews. The date happened to line up, interestingly enough. The date he selected with his casting lots was the same day that 1,000 years earlier, the Jewish people painted blood over their doorposts before Passover. Same day. And then 500 years later, Jesus, on the same day, 500 years later, explains to it, has the Last Supper and explains to us the, uh, um, the elements that we get to enjoy at Communion. Uh, we learn that Haman builds a, a 70-foot-tall pole. Um, it's translated gallows in, in most translations of the Bible, but it's more likely, historically, an impaling pole. So a 70-foot-tall impaling pole. And an impaling pole does exactly what it sounds like it does. That was his plan for, uh, for Mordecai because he hated Mordecai. There's more to that story, but again, these are the abbreviated in the cliff notes. Uh, Mordecai encourages Esther to intervene on behalf of the, of the Jews, which, by the way, we read about that story, you know, the you were born for, for such a time as this, or maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. It depends on what, what uh, translation you're reading. It sounds like they're having this, you know, very intimate conversation. That's not what happened. The Bible tells us that there was a messenger that was sent from Mordecai to Esther, and she responded with a message. Like, they were having to use a, a, a messenger to to transfer these messages back and forth. Um, so he tries to convince her to, uh, to do something to save the, uh, the, the people. She doubts herself because she's a Jew that didn't have any value back in that, that day. She doubts herself because she was a woman. She doubts herself because of her adoption circumstances. And she doubted herself because of a fear of death, because in that day you were not allowed to present yourself to the king without him inviting you. So, um, this is, we should probably read Esther 4.14 as well, because that's important, and most everybody knows it as well. This is Mordecai uh, telling her, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. Remember we read that last week as well? And then we move on to the, after the, your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows? Or remember we read several different versions, maybe, perhaps, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? 
So she says, okay, you get your people together and fast and pray for three days. I'll get my people together. We'll fast and pray for three days, and we'll see how it goes. So they do the fasting and praying, and she decides she's going to dress up, and she stands at a place on the inner court where Ahasuerus can actually see her from his house, like where he hangs out in the, in the, the palace. Through the center court, he actually, she just places herself there to be noticed. Well, that works because she's beautiful, and that's usually how dude's eyes works. And so the king does actually raise his scepter to her, which is a sign for, hey, come on in. You have permission to enter, and I'm not going to kill you for it. And uh, he says, what can I do for you? And she says, because she knows how to speak to him. She knows what gets him going. She says, I want to invite you to a party. And, And actually, she invites him to two parties. And at the second party... Oh, by the way, in the middle of all this, we also get kind of an oh yeah, by the way sort of story where it tells us that uh, the king finds out that Mordecai had saved his life from a, an assass- assassination attempt once before. He asks Haman what he should do for someone who pleases the king. And Haman is such a knob that he said, he answers as if he's the guy who the king is talking about. So... He gives this, uh, this wonderful answer that he thinks is going to be awesome. And uh, the king says, great idea, you do that for Mordecai, the guy he hates. So Haman actually has to lead Mordecai around on a horse throughout the city like his servant. And anyway, that's just a side story. Uh, so Haman goes home to pout after that. Then he shows up to the second party and that Esther is throwing and he thinks he's going to the party because the queen has specifically invited him. That's how important he is. And he shows up to the party, and that's where uh, Esther reveals the plot that he had and reveals what her heritage is. The king and, and uh, um, Haman didn't know that she was a Jew at that time and points out that it's Haman who was the one to put that, uh, that plot into action. Then she asked the king to reverse the decision that had already been made to, to kill all the Jews, and messengers had been sent out to allow that to happen. She asked him to reverse that decision. He says, of course, you're, uh, you're the best. I love you so much, or however they talk. And uh, she gets to send out messengers all over the, uh, the, the kingdom as well to say, anyone who lays a hand on the Jews will be killed themselves and creates this protection for the Jews. So, the Jewish people are saved, which means that the the line of David that needs to be completed, that we read about, gets to be maintained and completed so that we have a line from King David to Jesus. She was three generations into the 14 generations required to get from David to Jesus. It's an amazing story. It's, it's an amazing story. There's all sorts of really cool things in it that we didn't talk about. Um, Esther is so brave, and she acts so wisely and courageously, eventually. We have important le- lessons to learn from her. And I'm not taking anything away from her. But obviously, today, on Father's Day, 
what I want us to notice is that those lessons are a side note today. They're important lessons, but today, what I want you to take away is the question, who was responsible for her being present at, the, at, at that place in the first place? Whose decision was it? Who acted to create a circumstance where Esther was even still alive and was able to be there? Who adopted her and raised her as his own daughter? Who advised her when she was in the king's beauty pageant about how to behave, how to set herself apart? Who garnered the attention of Haman in the first place to create the circumstance to put her in a position where what we read about in in Esther 4, verse 14, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance will revive... Relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. And then goes on to say, yet who knows? And the New Living Translation says, perhaps you were made queen for a time such as this. Who was it that created, that grabbed the attention of Haman to put that plan in order for her to be in a position to take the action she took in the first place? Seems like kind of a butterfly effect story, doesn't it? I don't know where Crystal went, but now would be the time for the music team to come on up. (laughs) Crystal, if you can hear us. (laughs) So who was it that had the greatest impact on, on Esther? It was Mordecai, right? So in light of the message from the butterfly effect, who was it actually that saved the Jews in that generation? Could have been Mordecai. Or was it Cyrus, who two kings before that liberated the Jewish people from the Babylonian oppression? Or was it actually Cyrus's uh, attendant, his advisor, a guy named Harpagus? He was an advisor to Cyrus, and he suggested at the Battle of Lydia that Cyrus put his camels at the front of the fighting lines because the Lydian soldiers' horses were afraid of camels. And they were able to conquer the Lydians, who were a very, very wealthy people. And Cyrus's and the Persian Empire's wealth changed completely after that battle, and all of a sudden put him in a position to be able to make the declaration. Where, remember where it says in Ezra, in Ezra 1 that uh, the Lord moved the heart of King Cyrus? Well, what he did was to say, okay, Jewish people, you're free to move back, to to go back to Jerusalem, and you can rebuild the wall, and you can rebuild the temple there, and you can settle there, and oh yeah, my empire is going to pay for that. He was able to do that because of this battle at Lydia, which started this whole ball rolling several generations before that. How far back would we have to go to be able to see who was actually responsible for all of the circumstances required? You get where I'm going with that, right? How far into the future would we have to go to see the impacts and the results of the words that you say today, the actions that you take, the simple comment that you make to see how God uses that? How far into the future would we have to go to see that? 
Again, like the book says, what you do today and what you say matters. The big things matter and the small things matter. The seemingly insignificant comment that you make matters. I'm glad we have stories like Esther's with the, where we can learn about the impact that Mordecai had and with Moses and, and his father-in-law Jethro, the impact that he had. And that those are remind us directly from those are there to remind us directly from God's word, and maybe even give us the little nudge that we need to be able to say and to do that subtle little thing, that that significant thing or the insignificant thing, on purpose, and cause motion to begin, like the flapping of the butterfly wings, that will move the world for our God. I was going to pray. Do you want to do something else? Let me pray, and then I'll turn it over to you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, people like Andy Andrews that can write down these amazing connections for us to, to read about and to recognize so that we can see your hand in our world. I thank you for the hidden nuggets that you put in the Bible stories for us that in the ones that we're used to that we can see and we can recognize those those other little subtle differences that you reveal to us that we didn't notice before. I thank you for your hand on on the rest of our day today. I thank you for all the, the fathers in the room and for the fathers who, who aren't here. I thank you that you use us in ways that we're not even aware of to be able to literally change the world. We thank you for that. We thank you for opportunities to do that. We thank you for clarity to, to, uh, to be able to recognize those opportunities and the little nudges like you give us this morning that give us confidence to just go ahead and do it. We thank you for that today. We thank you for the results. And we pray for these things and, and thank you for them in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. To subscribe to our podcast, search New Life Eckley in all of the major podcasting apps. Audio and video of our sermons are posted at newlifeeckley.com slash live, and you can watch sermon slices weekdays on social media. Search at New Life Eckley. Our main service is at 10 a.m. Mountain Time every Sunday. Thanks for listening.